This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in Greek myths, catching up with everyone in their post-Trojan War lives, or lack thereof. We'll see Menelaus get his groove back, and Telemachus deal with a bunch of guys who want to marry his mom. The creature this week is an adorable tiny elephant that's definitely going to try to eat your brain. This is Myths and Legends, episode 220A, The Castaways. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, the Greeks went to war with the Trojans, and won, mostly. It took 10 years and the loss of thousands of lives, and a trick from the gods, but finally, they were on their way home, to somehow even more death and destruction. When we last left the characters, Agamemnon, after losing most of his men to a churning Aegean on the way home, died himself when he was stabbed by his wife and her lover. Menelaus, king of Sparta and husband to the recently recovered Helen, hadn't been seen after he was separated from Nestor at sea. Of his men, Odysseus was the sole survivor, marooned on an island with a goddess, after the sun god brought vengeance on their ship over some stolen cows. This week, we're going to catch up with three of the stories. Orestes, son of Agamemnon, Telemachus, son of Odysseus, and Menelaus, brother of Agamemnon, as they navigate the dangerous and equally deadly post-war world. Menelaus pinched the bridge of his nose. It's not that he didn't want to have a serious relationship conversation right now, but he kind of had to, you know, guide hundreds of men back from war, so could they put a pin in this? Helen, fists clenched and screaming internally, said that she didn't want to talk about this at all. He was the one who kept asking if they were okay. She had left him. She spent 10 years with another man. He led an army, killing a whole city to get her back, they weren't okay. They wouldn't be okay for a long time, and he should just take her advice and stop asking. He just straight up murdered everyone she had lived with for a decade. She had friends in that city. In some versions, he was going to kill her too, until she bared her breast to him and or the men who were sent to stone her. But not in this version though, Menelaus said, biting his lip. No, Helen barked. Menelaus rose. He didn't need any of this. Now, if she would excuse him, he was going to go do one of the things he was still good at, being a leader of men. He climbed above deck and ran his fingers through his hair, turning to his second in command. On a scale from good to great, how were things? Uh, look around. The ship was crashing. He wasn't wrong, but he wasn't right, yet. The other ships were crashing. Menelaus looked next to them, and a ship slammed into the sharp rocks, just outside of Crete, and splinters flew everywhere. It was then that Menelaus, king of Sparta, noticed the storm. What? Why didn't anyone come get him? Oh, you and your wife were talking, and I thought, untimely death at sea, or interrupting that. Life is full of tough choices, but that... That wasn't one of them. 
Another ship hit the rocks, and more screams were drowned out by the storm. That kind of being a dark dad joke. You know what? The second in command said, I told you. I told you to wait and go with Agamemnon when we left Troy. But you guys had to fight about whether or not to sacrifice to Athena. And oh, what did you say? Athena? She held out for too long fighting for the Trojans. Not going to sacrifice to her. Do-do-do-do-do. Going to get on the road. Like, really? You had to say exactly that before crossing the sea? Just keep your thoughts to yourself. Menelaus groaned and looked to the sky. <sighs> okay. He was sorry. Sorry that they succeeded despite the gods being against them. Sorry that Athena lost. He turned to his second-in-command, who gave him a thumbs up. Great apology. He was just lashing himself to the boat because it was so heartfelt. That's the sort of stuff you do when things are going really well and you're loved by the gods. Orestes looked at the grave. The grave of a great man. The grave of his father. For such a shocking demise nothing much had changed. Word of his death rolled across the Peloponnese like a wave. But the murderer, Clytemnestra, and her lover, Aegisthus, remained in control. They had had a decade to buy the loyalty from the men in the palace, the ones with swords, and the nobles, despite their protest, bowed to power, not the gods. The people didn't care that the king who hadn't been present in over a decade still wasn't present, but now on a more permanent basis, so Clytemnestra remained. Orestes had been a child when the word of his father's death reached him in a faraway kingdom where he had been fostered in secret under the protection of the king. The tears stung the eyes of the ten-year-old as his foster father, the king, found him with a dagger and a pack. He told the boy to sit. The old ways, they were over. Though the Greeks had won, the war had destroyed a generation. The age of heroes was over. And while previously no one would have stood for what happened to Agamemnon, everyone had to look out for their own survival now. If anyone cared about honor anymore, there wouldn't be much to win there. And if they did, what next? Who would rule Mycenae better? if not the woman who had already been ruling it for a decade. Orestes was counseled to let it go. It was a tragedy, of course, but the world was tragedy. And if Orestes wanted to survive in it, he needed to learn now how to move on, where the past would destroy him. The death of the old ways could be a good thing, too. If there was no honor, there was no revenge, no countless generations of destruction that followed an evil act. Orestes had nodded, grateful that the words had roused him from his bloodlust. The king was right, of course. He couldn't go avenge his father. He couldn't stride into the palace, a ten-year-old with a knife. He was his father's heir. The same thing would happen to him. No, he needed to be patient. Be patient and wait. So he did. For seven years, he thought of nothing else. He sharpened his blade, he trained. He practiced disguising himself in his voice, practiced moving silently in the darkness. Then, when he was a man, he took that pack and that dagger and left Phocis, the kingdom where he was fostered. A young man, Pylades, the prince of Phocis, found him on the way out. He said he knew what Orestes was doing, and he was coming with him. And together, 
both men slipped south along the isthmus to Mycenae. In the garb of a beggar, Orestes listened. He learned. In under a week, they found what they had been looking for on a lost and lonely hill. Agamemnon broke Troy. He climbed from exile to unite a region. He shouldn't be relegated to a headstone made anonymous with vines. Orestes tore them away and took out his knife. He didn't have libations, the offering of wine that his father had been forbidden by the queen. And when he returned, he wouldn't bring wine. He would bring blood. In the meantime, he took his braid and the dagger, slicing through his hair, the last thing that could identify him. He left it there, on his father's grave. Then, he felt a tap. His companion, Philades, said he'd just finished checking the area. There were people coming. Orestes' ears pricked up at the sound of footsteps. In half an instant, both he and his friend were shadows, crouching behind a nearby stone. It was a woman with a following of women, holding wine herself. Orestes realized it as soon as the woman saw what had been left on her father's grave, hair the same color as her own. Her brother's simple sacrifice. Electra's eyes scanned the shadows. Orestes? The young man rose from the darkness to meet the libation bearers. Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, heard them before he opened his eyes. He heard them as he fell asleep, heard them in his dreams, an omnipresent reminder of his failure, his weakness. Their laughs ricocheted through the house. It was once his father's house, a father he had never met. They, Penelope, Laertes, and Telemachus, existed in the negative space of Odysseus's absence. They were a son without a father, a father without a child, a wife without a husband, and a people without a king. Odysseus was a wound that wouldn't heal. Moving on meant admitting that he was gone. And despite the pain and problems of his absence, they weren't ready to do that. So, for now, they existed in the liminal spaces. In the twilight of his morning room, Telemachus heard the breaking of a jar and the squealing of a bleeding pig. The men, the suitors, were up early. As soon as the others began returning from war, Diomedes, Agamemnon, Nestor, and Odysseus did not return, there was talk. Perhaps he was dead. Penelope, Odysseus's wife, was the daughter of a Spartan prince, and still of childbearing age. But Ithaca was a pittance, hanging on the edge of their world. They managed to evade notice for a time. Then Menelaus returned home. It had been seven years after the end of the war and 17 since the men left. Suddenly, all eyes were on Ithaca, on the kingdom of the man who had sailed away and never returned. There were countless shipwrecks on the way home from Troy. Agamemnon's fleet alone had been annihilated in the storm. That's detailed on one of the member episodes. The Aegean was big, but it wasn't that big. So the men descended on the palace. In their eyes, Odysseus, the king, was dead. So Telemachus could choose a new husband for his mother. 
It started out respectful, but as the days turned to weeks and the weeks turned to months, more and more suitors arrived from all around Ithaca and the wider Greek world. Soon, they were dragging in sheep and pigs from the fields and slaughtering them. They were forcing their way into wine cellars and breaking jars. They were harassing the servants. Telemachus laid awake in the dark. He knew it was time to do what should have been done when they first arrived. He was the son of Odysseus, but he feared he only possessed his father's faculties as a pale, incomplete reflection. He should have cast the men out when they arrived. His indecision had only emboldened the men outside, who now squatted in the servants' quarters. His mother had tried to say no at first, but she had no recourse. So she wove. Laertes, Odysseus's older father, needed a funeral shroud for when her aging father-in-law finally went to join the rest of his generation. So when that was done, she would choose a suitor. It was a servant that revealed the deception, that the queen of Ithaca was going under the cover of darkness and delicately picking apart her work from the previous day, making what should have taken days last months. The suitors had discovered it last week. They became angry, and when Telemachus suggested that they leave, he found only snickers and sneers. He realized, on that day, that he only existed now at their discretion. What he had let in as a kitten had turned into a lion that could simply take what it wanted at any moment. There were over 50 grown, armed men out there, the sons of the best families in not only Ithaca, but around Greece. They would not be denied. But Telemachus was the only son of Odysseus, and he had to stand. His father had war thrust upon him, and Telemachus had this. He rose from bed, splashed water on his face, and opened the door of his bedroom, and met the eyes of a servant reaching for the handle. Telemachus had a visitor. He said his name was Mentes. We'll pick back up with our three protagonists, but that will be right after this. You ever feel like losing our ships and our army was the best thing that ever happened to us? Menelaus said, reclining in his villa, sipping whatever would be the 13th century BC version of a pina colada was. Helen simply smiled. Well, I guess I mean us and not all those guys who died when the ships wrecked. You know, I just feel like we're free. Here, there's no reminder of the war. All our guys are rich and we have nothing to do but relax on the beach. Helen looked over at her husband. It was true that things were good. Good in a way she never thought they could be again. The winds blew them south, and they had landed in Egypt. They hung out at the port for almost three weeks, the wind being completely still. The time came when, out of food, they ventured inland to barter with the locals. And instantly, every man on the ship was richer than a Grecian king, except for Menelaus, who was simply a richer Grecian king. Their plunder from Troy, the gold, the gods, the spices, everything else, was priceless in Egypt. Case in point, they traded away a fraction of their loot and, with the surplus, could buy a whole new fleet. Menelaus traveled around to all the different kingdoms, Ethiopia, Cyprus, Libya, and he was treated like the legend that he was at every stop. That was seven years ago. 
the wind probably picked up at some point. The Greeks were too busy basking in the sunlight to care. Menelaus, too, was changed. Here in Egypt and other parts of northern Africa where he visited, he was free of the war, free of Greece, free of the curse of the house of Atreus. Here, he had simply to live in the sun and be happy. Things were great between he and Helen, too. He was that excited, carefree youth that she had fallen in love with long ago, when he was merely an exile in her father's house. But now, something gnawed at her. She couldn't help thinking of everything still left behind at home. With each year that passed in paradise, she couldn't stop tallying her daughter, Hermione's age, the girl she had left in Sparta. She had to be over 20 now. They had been gone for 17 years. The girl had grown up without a mother or a father. That conversation between Helen and Menelaus never happened, though, because another one took its place. Ethiopia, where they found themselves now, might have been in Central Africa, and while it was a distant land to the Greeks, it wasn't completely separated. That morning, Menelaus realized, with the visit from the man who had once been his chief advisor, that he would never be able to outrun the curse of his father. His brother was dead, murdered by his own wife and her lover, and it had gone unanswered for seven years. He and Agamemnon had fought, as all brothers do, but there had been a dream where they ruled a unified Peloponnese, the southern peninsula of Greece that holds Argo, Sparta, Mycenae, and more. Everything they had fought for was coming undone. It was time for the king and queen to go home. That meant, though, that they needed to find a way home. For years, it seemed like the gods had been keeping them in Africa with unfavorable winds. When Menelaus had bothered to check, which was not a lot during the past few years. But there was someone in this part of the world, someone who served Poseidon, a god who controlled the winds, Proteus, the old man of the sea. And Menelaus was going to go pay him a visit. Clytemnestra, the former wife and murderer of Agamemnon, had awoken with a scream the previous night. She dreamed she gave birth to a serpent and, with dream logic, swaddled it and held it to her chest to feed. It drew blood. It killed her. The soothsayers all said the same thing. It wasn't the gods that were angry with her. It was the dead. It was Agamemnon. He called out from the grave for his honors, for the libations. There have been visits to his grave every so often over the past years, but the honors due to a king had never arrived, and the visits were primarily from Aegisthus, the man who had killed him and taken his place. On nights where Aegisthus got particularly loosened up, he used to stand on Agamemnon's grave, pelting it with rocks, screaming for Orestes to come and avenge his father, a prospect that he lived in constant fear of during the day. Electra, Agamemnon's daughter, hadn't had a life since the night her brother was spirited away. She didn't have a claim, not directly at least, but that didn't stop Aegisthus, the man who slept in her father's bed, rode his chariot and sat on his throne, from proposing the idea of a purge. But the true power in Mycenae, Clytemnestra, Electra's mother, 
forbade it. Electra was a woman, and her daughter. The people that mattered, the nobles and her bodyguard, bowed when they told them to bow. Murdering her daughter would invite the ire of the gods. There was a special torture they reserved for someone who killed a family member. Still, Electra was as bold as her mother, calling her mother and Aegisthus, often and openly, murderous adulterers. She knew she was being watched constantly. But one day, very recently, her mother made it clear that it could be much, much worse. She could be sent away, away from the prying eyes of anybody who cared about her in Mycenae. She wouldn't be killed, but there were lives that were worse than death. She could be forced to live on a cold, grimy dungeon floor with only the gnawing rats as friends. Then, the dream. Clytemnestra awoke and knew that she must give libations for her dead husband. It had been so long ago, it could be put in the past now. Now, the gods had brought Electra and Orestes together. Orestes had gone to the Delphic Oracle and heard from Apollo himself. He felt the horn at his side. He was willing to take on the consequences of killing a family member. To avenge family murder with more family murder. Greek myth was fun like that. He said that destiny waits for us all. We only have to go meet it. They discussed their plan before Electra rose and walked toward the city. Telemachus, son of Odysseus's heart, beat in his chest. With a head nod, the old men of the island looked on the youth with a smile. About time. He had called an assembly of the kings of Ithaca, the first one in 17 years. His father had called the last one. Now, the boys had grown into men. Those who had been too young to leave for Troy, those who had never known conflict or sacrifice, were grown. Everyone at the assembly knew of the young men Telemachus spoke. They were the nobles' relatives, nephews, their sons. They saw the coming of a new age, but they were powerless to stop it. Antinous spoke up. He was one of the men seeking after Penelope's hand, and he was the one who had discovered the ruse with the loom. He said she had seduced all the suitors, beckoning them there with her existence. If Telemachus didn't want to make his mother choose, or choose for her, then he should send her back to her father's house so he could arrange a marriage because she might be a queen in her 30s, but this was still ancient Greece. Telemachus said that he would do that. The suitors were quieted. The young man's voice boomed as he said one of his father's old friends had returned to the island. He had been named Mentes and he had given Telemachus advice. Go abroad. Go and seek the truth about his father. Speak to the other kings who had returned from Troy, starting with Nestor and Menelaus. If his father was truly dead, if he didn't gain news from the kings, then he would return home and find a husband for his mother. Weird. Just then, there was a screech from above the assembly. Eagles. Eagles in the air, fighting it out in broad daylight. The assembly gasped. The birds were tearing at each other, tumbling through the sky, only to right themselves and fight anew. Halithresis cried out that it was a sign. The suitors should leave, because when Odysseus came home, when, not if, there would be a slaughter. The young men, the suitors, only laughed at the old soothsayer. 
The old man was using his scary words and his made-up prophecies. Odysseus had followed prophecies. Agamemnon had followed prophecies. Look what happened to them. One lost to the sea, the other to the dagger of his wife's lover. The meeting, the first assembly since Odysseus had left, devolved into a shouting match between the old men and the young. Telemachus hadn't received explicit permission to be able to go. In fact, the suitors still screamed out that he was forbidden. But in the chaos, Telemachus quietly slipped out and went back home to prepare a ship. When he arrived there, he found a friend standing at his home, telling him his ship was ready, the one that he had requested. He could borrow it for a few weeks to go to Pylos and Sparta. Telemachus knew when to stay quiet and thank the gods. And this was one such time. Meanwhile, in town, another Telemachus stopped off at the houses of his closest friends, telling them he was putting together a crew to seek out the truth about his father. They should meet him at the docks at nightfall. Menelaus gasped as quietly as he could. Swimming straight down 50 meters and navigating submerged caves was not the easiest thing to do for a king who had been relaxing in his villa for the last seven years. Ugh, gonna need to get back to the gym. Maybe start a war or two to get these extra pounds off. He and his men saw Proteus, his long beard waving, as deep in his underwater cave, he orchestrated the ocean winds at the behest of Poseidon himself. It had taken a few months to gather the intelligence, to find the one who controlled the winds. But finally, here they were. Proteus, the half-man, part fish, part horse. Huh, weird stuff. He was nearly within the Spartan king's power. They were almost home. Menelaus swam along the shallow pools until he was just behind Proteus and, at just the right moment, leapt up, wrapping his overdeveloped arms around the old man of the sea, grappling him. Menelaus grinned. Heh, easy peasy. Hey, what's up? Menelaus said to the struggling supernatural being in his arms. Shh, shh, quiet, quiet, just relax, just relax. Menelaus counseled the old man of the sea as his fish tail flopped around violently and his horse legs kicked out in front of him. Proteus did relax and Menelaus eased up on his grip a little bit. Then the old man relaxed so much that he passed directly through Menelaus's arms. Menelaus tried to scramble to catch Proteus, but it was too late. The old man of the sea was a shapeshifter, and he had transformed into water, pouring himself into the pools at Menelaus' feet, the pools that connected to the caves and the caves that connected to the sea. Proteus had gotten away. So he's transformed into a lion, snake, panther, boar, water, of course. But we got him now. Seal team, move in, Menelaus said to his Spartans, who were dressed as actual seals. Proteus, in addition to controlling the winds, had a herd of seals he looked after, a detail the Spartans learned after they found Proteus' daughter and had a totally not menacing conversation with her. The seals were just a hobby thing he did. But after their many failed attempts... Menelaus put on his Odysseus hat and came up with kind of a novel plan. Dress up as seals, sneak into the old man's herd, and surround him. Menelaus had gone around the kingdoms of northern Africa, 
finding his men. And now, they were ready. Hey, hey, you think this is the origin of the name SEAL Team? Menelaus whispered as Proteus hobbled to the center of the seals, taking his place in the trap. His second-in-command whispered back that it absolutely wasn't. Please focus. When Proteus took a seat on the rock in the center, the seal costumes that Menelaus stitched himself, you could be an epic warrior king and have other talents, flew back, revealing the Spartan soldiers. Proteus looked around in panic. They had nets and rope if he transformed into a lion, panther, or boar, buckets if he was water again, and a pillowcase if he turned into a snake. They got him. The old man of the sea swallowed hard, looked around, uh, 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 tree. In a flash, a tree took root deep in the rocks, tall and strong, with bark like iron. Menelaus smiled as one of his men hefted over an axe. Got him. Porter stood in the doorway. It was getting late and this was the palace, so make it quick. Clytemnestra didn't just let anyone in here. A man stood there in the clothes of a traveler. He said he was just passing through on his way from Delphi, but he had news of Orestes. The porter was silenced by that name. Oh, he rushed inside. In seconds, a woman came running to the door. The traveler's eyes flashed like he knew her, like she had hardly changed at all in the past seven years. Another woman stood beside her. The traveler bowed low before the queen and nodded to Electra like she was a stranger. Clytemnestra demanded to know the news about Orestes, the son of the late king. The traveler nodded. Orestes, well, Orestes was dead. He wished he came bearing better news. Clytemnestra didn't miss a beat. She staggered backwards, as if the news floored her. The traveler apologized again. He said he could be on his way. He didn't want to impose as well. He was just here to deliver a message. Orestes' ashes were in Delphi, and the people there wanted to know if Clytemnestra wanted them, or if they should remain at Delphi. Clytemnestra hid her elation well. With Menelaus lost at sea, and Orestes dead, the house of Atreus was through. No one would be coming for her now. Mycenae was hers. She beckoned the traveler in, telling him that the king needed to hear this. All the details of the death of Orestes, like a lot of detail, like a gratuitous amount of detail. She turned to Electra. Make sure this young man had everything he needed. Electra waited until her mother, rushing down the corridor to tell her lover, Aegisthus, was out of sight. The traveler felt his dagger underneath his cloak and nodded to his sister. It was time. Their father, Agamemnon, would be avenged. Telemachus picked his way over the sleeping suitors and slipped out the door. It was an early night for the men that had crowded his house. A suspiciously early night. The suitors were asleep, and thus unable to keep him there, or even ask where he was going. He got a free ship, and a dozen friends to help him meet up with the kings of Greece, 
to ask if they knew anything about his father. And, of course, Mentor. Mentor was one of his father's old friends who had stopped by. But the man had been with him the whole day, encouraging Telemachus and offering wise advice. And was, yes, the origin of the word mentor, as we know it in the English language. The stranger was so wise that Telemachus began to suspect that Mentor wasn't actually Mentor, but Athena, the patron goddess of his father. It filled Telemachus with a new hope. The ship, the people, the gods. Maybe he was like his father after all. Maybe he was like his father after all. where we'll leave things this week. Next week, we'll wrap up these three stories and check back in with Odysseus, who's having a worse time than all of them. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a Bob Ross waffle iron, a waffle iron that makes waffles in the shape of Bob Ross's face, you can get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that aren't for the mornings when you wake up with the thought of, hey, I'd really like to eat Bob Ross's face this morning. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the water elephant from Myanmar. Say you're walking along a mountain river between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Myanmar. Well, then you'll get to see a rare sight, a bunch of tiny, adorable elephants sunbathing on the beach. They're maybe an inch tall with brilliant white tusks, You've just seen the water elephant. Also, I am so sorry, because you're already dead. The water elephant is extremely rare, often living in muddy waters high up in the mountain or brackish waters down by the coast. Often, if you catch them swimming, you'll just see their highly venomous tusk protruding from the water. They think one spot of white in a sea of muddy water is enough of warning. But if they're feeling very generous, they'll roar a sound that is reminiscent of the elephant, what they primarily hunt. Yes, hunt. You see, they may look small, but they are strong enough to take down an elephant, kill it, and consume its brain. Yeah, I don't know why the brain, but they eat elephant brains. Some versions of this creature in other parts of the world will band together to make a whole herd of water elephants to shred nets and capsize boats for an all-they-care-to-eat human buffet. I don't know why they have to go after everyone when, like, one human would probably do it for the whole herd. Just wasteful. There are songs you can learn off to ward water elephants, but I don't know what they are, so don't knowingly antagonize mouse-sized aquatic elephants. And if you're in the market for a pet, for your safety and that of the water elephant, you're gonna wanna pass on this one. I know it sounds cute, but it doesn't do well in captivity, and they usually die within three days. Also, having a poisonous, super-strong pet that is actively trying to eat your brain Maybe kind of dangerous. Just saying. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>